New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. Um, I was telling you Monday that I was rather worried about this thing about not being a bishop, you know, and two bishops. I, I've discovered something new uh, to worry about uh, today. I was looking at some of the photographs of the first couple of days up on the screen last night, and I discovered that when I'm speaking at the moment, my hands are in the air a lot. And I'm very worried that I'm turning into a charismatic accidentally. <laughs> so what I wanted to ask you to do is that if you should see any hint of my feet moving and me beginning to dance, please tell me afterwards, because I have to try and put a break on this, right? It's, it's extremely concerning. Bad influence, you see. Uh, I want to turn to God's Word, and we're going to read in a moment from Genesis chapter 32. Uh, I want to give you a bit of context, though, in case you don't know this story well. At the point we're picking up the reading, uh, Jacob, for reasons we'll get into, has made an enemy of his brother Esau. Um, so very providentially, this morning's talk really picks up where Ben left off last night, because Jacob, as a result of this enmity, has been abroad for a number of years. He's heading now back to the land of Canaan. He is convinced that Esau means him harm. He's actually heard that Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, which does not sound promising. And uh, so we pick up the story of Jacob at, at this point in Genesis 32, verse 22. <clears throat> that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Yabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. May God bless us as we reflect on his word to us. God so loved the world. God so loves the world. And yesterday we were thinking about the ways in which the story of Abraham proclaims that message. 
and also sets the framework for understanding our own lives, especially when they are not going well. In those moments when it is hard for us to find the love of God in our lives. And the Abraham story sets out a a wonderful vision for us. Abraham, given this great promise, told of God's plan to bless him, a fantastic picture that it conjures up of a people chosen by God, living constantly in his presence, mediating God's blessing to everybody around about them, and thereby changing the world. It's fantastic. It's also potentially discouraging if you are one of the meek of the earth, if you feel that you do not possess a faith like Abraham, if you find it hard to trust God as he leads you into the unknown, and if your obedience is less spectacular than Abraham's. It's hard, maybe, for you to identify with Abraham. Hard to imagine that you are really one of the same people, the same people of God as him. The Abraham story by itself could be discouraging if you are one of the meek of the earth. It could also, I think, be potentially deluding if you are not yet one of the meek of the earth. Not everyone is in the same condition. Not every one of us is wired the same way. Some of us are naturally meek, and others have to work really hard at it. And uh, for some of us who are a bit more confident, a bit more optimistic, we read the story of Abraham and we say, fantastic, we are the people chosen by God, called to live in His presence. Let's tool up and do it. Let's just get out there and do it. Let's change the world. And so off we go with great vision, great expectations, especially of ourselves, with a profound sense perhaps of our own importance. We know the game plan. We understand the task. We're ready to go. We have our ministry already planned. Let's get on with it and bring in God's kingdom by Tuesday. A few years of theological education to refine our skills, accumulate some more facts, and off we shall go and save the world. The church and the world has just been waiting for us. We are the people, the superheroes of faith and ministry, well able to leap over tall church buildings and to outrun the speeding bullets of a hostile culture or even of a hostile congregation. Just give me a telephone box in which to change into my superhero outfit and I'll be ready to go. By the way, have you ever wondered how Superman would manage in the world of mobile phones? (laughs) You ever tried to find a phone box? Just asking. Now, most people find out fairly quickly, of course, that it is not as simple as I have just described. 
All of us discover this eventually. It just takes some people longer than others to get there. What we mainly discover eventually is that while we often enter into God's mission in the world with great thoughts in our mind about changing the world, God's planning calling us to that mission is often different in its emphasis. In fact, it's always different, really, in its emphasis. God's plan involves also changing us, not just the world. We often assume, I think, in our superhero mode that as we set out on the journey with God, we are serving a God whom we already know quite well, whose agenda we perfectly understand. We often assume that the main problems to be solved in the world lie outside ourselves, over there somewhere, and they're not too difficult to solve. It just takes a bit of organization, a bit of energy, a bit of funding, and it'll be fine. But in due course, sooner or later, we find ourselves wrestling with the God whom we did not fully know and whose agenda is surprising. And perhaps we discover things about ourselves that we did not know. We discover that the main problems to be solved in the world do not lie outside ourselves, but actually deep within us. And that some of these problems are not easy to solve at all. And perhaps around the same time, we arrive at this blessed conclusion that God does not need superheroes to progress His work in the world. In some ways, God does not even require saints, depending how you think of that word. What God requires, I believe, is only ordinary human beings with all of their flaws and with all of their sins as well, ordinary human beings who are prepared nonetheless to respond to God's call when they hear it. The character in the book of Genesis who most underlines this message and who saves us from what would be a partial understanding maybe on the basis of the Abraham story, the person who helps me anyway the most in this area is Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And it's the Jacob story we'll be thinking about this morning. The Genesis story has moved on. Abraham has died, but the promise, you remember, the promise of God survives. It survives in Isaac, a man very much like his father in many good ways. He makes good decisions in his part of the story. He treats people well. He holds on to the faith. But this more or less happy situation is not destined to last in due course, Isaac fathers two sons, twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25 tells the story of their births, and it's in that chapter that Jacob receives his name. It is a name with tremendous significance for the story that follows. In Hebrew, the name is pronounced Yaakov. It's connected with a Hebrew noun, 
akev, meaning a heel, the back of your foot, a heel. He's named Jacob, we're told, because he's born clutching at the heel of his brother Esau. But the name becomes important to the story in other ways because remarkably the name defines fundamentally who Jacob turns out to be because the play on words between Yaakov and Akev is not just between the name and the heel. There's another Hebrew noun, Akev, and that is not a noun, a verb, and that verb means to cheat. Now, if you know the Jacob story at all, you will know that Jacob turns out fundamentally to be a person who cheats. That's who he is. Later in the story, we'll find Esau making precisely this point. Jacob has cheated him twice. He takes his birthright and he takes his blessing. So consider this. The person who carries with him God's promise at this point in the story is Jacob the cheat. And that whole reality of cheating dominates the first part of the Jacob story. It's his cheating that leads to his hasty flight out of Canaan, afraid of Esau's anger. He moves abroad, stays for a long time in a foreign land with his mother's family in order to avoid his brother's revenge. It's one of those other journeys in the biblical story that has such enormous significance because we discover that actually it's God who is moving Jacob on. Even though Jacob leaves for really bad reasons, it is God, we discover, who's in all of that. And later on, as we'll see, God will change his name and will call Jacob to a different way of being. The whole story of Jacob in the book of Genesis is designed to answer two questions that arise just from my very brief description of it. The first question is, how can this man possibly be the father of God's people? How can cheating Jacob possibly be the father of God's people? And the second question is, how can Jacob possibly inherit the promise to Abraham if he leaves the land of the promise. How can that be? We have a paradox. So that's the overview. Let's get to some of the detail. Genesis 25. Jacob takes advantage of his brother Esau. Fatigue and hunger lead Esau to trade his birthright to Jacob for some food. So the story has hardly opened, and Esau has given away to Jacob his inheritance rights as firstborn, which in biblical times was the right to receive twice as much as the other brothers of the father's property. Esau is contemptuous of his birthright. He sells it very, very cheaply, so his behavior is not very good, but then neither is Jacob. 
What turns out to be the case in the story is that the hand that once grasped at Esau's heel now proves to be the hand of a character who is grasping, who is manipulative in general. And this is not perhaps what we expect of the people that God has called to to do mission in the world. It's not what we expect of somebody who has received the blessing of God and whose vocation is to pass it on to other people. Cheating is not and should not be part of the agenda. You don't see it commended in the New Testament as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Thou shalt cheat thy neighbor. I don't think so. A devious character. Jacob's deviousness shows up again in chapter 27, where Rebekah prompts Jacob to deceive Isaac into bestowing the patriarchal blessing on Jacob instead of Esau. So this is no longer about property. This is the question, who's going to be the top son overall? And we're told that Rebekah commands Jacob, very strong verb, not normally used in the Old Testament with a a female subject. It's not culturally appropriate back then for women to command. But Rebekah exerts all the authority as a mother that she can bring in order to get Jacob to carry out her scheme. And Jacob complies, unsurprisingly for a cheat. He has no moral qualms about the proposed course of action. He's only really concerned with getting caught. Jacob's own character is actually again alluded to in this chapter in his physical self-description. Rebecca's plan, some of you will remember, is to have him dress up in a certain way to make him appear to be like his brother and thus to fool Isaac into giving the blessing. And Jacob sees a problem. Uh, He says, well, the trouble is, mother, that Esau is a hairy man, and I, on the other hand, am a smooth man. And at one level, that is a, a physical description. But interestingly, that word smooth is typically used elsewhere in the Bible of deceptive speech. He's a hairy man, I'm a smooth man. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth, a smooth mouth, works ruin. So when Jacob says, I'm a smooth man, we're to read that on two different levels. He's a smooth operator. That's the point. He's a slippery proposition. And as a a slippery man, Jacob goes on in this story to disguise himself physically as Esau. Isaac is almost blind. He's a bit suspicious, but not suspicious enough to avoid giving the blessing. And Jacob finds himself by cheating 
now in the legal financial position of the firstborn son. The cheater wins again. And it's these two infamous events that lead Jacob into exile. You can well imagine Esau is absolutely incandescent with rage by this point in the story. And so Rebekah arranges for Jacob's departure from Beersheba to her own country up north, where Jacob can stay with her brother Laban in Haran. This is Rebekah's last appearance in the book of Genesis, and it's a really sad way to exit. Her single significant action in this story has been to engineer a massive fraud. That's a very sad thing for which to be remembered. She is a cheat. Her son Jacob is a cheat. And her brother Laban, it turns out, is also a cheat. It's a family business. Cheating Incorporated. A colleague of mine at Regent College was once asked uh, to lead our Regent College retreat on the theme of the family of God. And I think the people who asked him thought this would be a very cheerful, upbeat, optimistic kind of series of addresses. But he chose to speak from Genesis. And he said, look, this is the family of God. What do you think of this? This, this This is who they are. And this reality... This reality of the cheating family, the family called by God who are really quite lost at this point in the story, this is summed up in the story in the word Aramean, Aram, Syria. This is where Rebekah's family live. And the whole question is, will Jacob follow this way of life? Deuteronomy 26 describes Jacob as a wandering Aramean. And I don't think that's just a description of his physical journeys. Another Bible translation says, an Aramean given up for lost. And that's who Jacob is at this present moment. He's wandering. He's lost. He's on the move like Abraham, but he's going nowhere. What a family. Would you like them very much in your church, do you think? If you did welcome into your church, you'd have to realize they're bringing an awful lot of baggage along with them. And most of that baggage has been acquired by dubious means. Your pastoral resources would be absolutely stretched to the limit. Rebecca would bring in with her serious control issues. Esau would turn up with huge anger and resentment simmering in his heart. You'd have to watch Jacob really closely when the collection plate was going around. And poor old Isaac, well, he would just need a lot of looking after in general. Surely these are not people that God could possibly use in the building of his kingdom. 
Surely, if Jacob is moving anywhere in this story, it is away from God, away from the chosen people of God, away from a useful life lived for God. So it seems. If Moses later in the story is God's spokesman, if Elijah is God's messenger, then Jacob is God's rat bag. Do you have that word in Northern Ireland, rat bag? It's a great word. We had a great vocabulary when I was growing up in the west of Scotland. Uh, Most of it, I'm afraid, I could not possibly share with you nice people uh, here this morning. But one of the more respectable words, in a way, is this word, rat bag. And that's who Jacob is. But, but, the point is, he remains God's rat bag. That's the point. And God remains God. And you remember who God is in this story? God is one whose firm intention is to bless. And so it turns out that the movement of Jacob away from God actually is a movement of Jacob toward God. That's the amazing paradox of this story. The exile that Jacob enters into as he leaves the promised land will turn out to be the very crucible in which new faith and new life will be forged. That is how it is with God in biblical faith, always turning evil and dysfunction toward the good. And so, we find described in Genesis chapter 28 a very brief but extremely important moment in the Jacob story. Some of you will know this story really well. Jacob, on his journey north, comes near Bethel. He overnights near this town. As he sleeps, he dreams. He dreams of a stairway between earth and heaven with God's servants going up and down the stairway. Probably we're to think of something like an ancient Babylonian ziggurat, a tower, very likely the Tower of Babel is one of these things, a tower with steps leading up into the heavens by which the gods were invited to come down and enter the temple and be with the people. That's, I think, the correct image uh, of the stairway to heaven in this uh, passage. Uh, It's probably not quite the same image as Led Zeppelin had in mind when they premiered this song, by the way, in Belfast. Did you know that? Premiered this song in Belfast back in 1971. History records that the Belfast crowd was unimpressed. Anyone here want to own up to being at the Led Zeppelin concert in 1971 in Belfast? Any takers? No. Well, I'll leave that to your own judgment. Anyway, uh, the stairway we were to think of is very likely this kind of stairway. It's a symbol of the accessibility of God's help and God's presence. And where God is standing in this passage is a very interesting question. Some of your Bibles may well tell you that God was standing above at the top of the stairway. But I think it's much more likely that the Hebrew means us to think 
that God is actually standing at the foot of the stairway where Jacob is. And if that is right, in that very fact, of course, the love of God for Jacob is already being powerfully communicated. Before there's any repentance on Jacob's part, before there's the least sign of any virtue, before there is the faintest notion in Jacob's mind that his journey lies in the hands of God, before any of that, God is to be found where Jacob is at the foot of this mighty stairway. It's a marvelous picture. And as God stands there with Jacob, He gives Jacob this remarkable promise. It's a promise of land. It's a promise of innumerable offspring. It's a promise of God's presence with Jacob to protect him and to return him to the promised land. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. And so God reveals Himself to Jacob and to us as the same God who spoke to Abraham and to Isaac. He confirms to Jacob that He stands with them in the chosen line, that Jacob is indeed one of the missional people of God. The very promises first made to Abraham as he was settling in the land are now made to Jacob as he's trying to leave the land. He will return. God will bring him back. Whatever may happen in Jacob's life, the Lord will be with him, saving him from disaster and ensuring the ultimate triumph of the promise. It's a remarkable picture one of many remarkable pictures in the book of Genesis of God's grace in the midst of the journey. And remember, this journey was only made necessary in the first place by some really bad choices in a highly dysfunctional family. And yet, this journey too becomes part of the journey that God is taking these people on And Jacob begins to see this already. He gets up. He transforms his pillow into a pillar, a sacred pillar. He dedicates it by pouring oil on it. He calls the place Bethel, house of God. He names it Bethel because he intends in the future, he says, when he returns, that this pillar will become God's house to him. This is Jacob's first encounter with God in the story. It represents a kind of conversion, a kind of half-step anyway. It's marked by a vow. That's how he responds. Here's Jacob's vow. If God will be with me and will watch over me in this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. Now, a vow is a vow, and uh, that's good. But don't you think this is a very interesting vow as you read 
what God promises and how Jacob responds. I, I think this is very interesting. It seems to me that Jacob's response to God falls very far short of God's commitment to Jacob. Notice, first of all, the conditional. We've been talking about no conditions, have we not? Notice, if God, if God will be with me and will watch over me, and then he kind of responds to God's promise, but you will notice that he leaves out every reference to the land. He does not refer to any descendants. He does not refer to any expansion in the land. He certainly doesn't refer to any blessing of all the families of the earth. He leaves all of that out. What is he really interested in, Jacob? Is he interested in being the missional people of God? If God will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. That's what he's interested in. He's a prosperity gospel guy. That's what he's interested in. If God will look after my immediate needs, and if He'll bring me safely back to my father's house. Notice, not to the promised land, not to fulfill the promise to Abraham. If God will look after me, I'll kind of make Him my God. that's, That's what Jacob says. So, he's met with God, but boy, he is still a smooth man. He's still a smooth operator. It's as much a bargain with God, this, as it is a vow. These are the last words that Jacob speaks in the land of Canaan. It takes him 20 years to get back, a long time to wait, but God, of course, as we know already, God is a patient waiter. And while God waits, and while Jacob waits, we find him learning a whole bunch of important lessons up there in Haran. Learning environment number one, he gets married. Very challenging learning experience for most people, even under the best of circumstances. It's especially challenging for Jacob. You know the story. He works for seven years for his uncle so that he may marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. But when the time is up, Laban substitutes for Rachel his older daughter, Leah. And Jacob does not discover this deception until the morning after the wedding night. It's not the sharpest pencil in the pencil box. He's a cheater, but he doesn't expect to be cheated by other people. When he protests about the scam, Laban pleads local custom and offers him Rachel along with Leah for another seven years of work. And that's how Jacob ends up having two wives and being very tired. And the wives each have a maid, so he is heavily outnumbered in this scenario. Now, this is very ironic and very appropriate, of course, because back in the day, he grasped after the rights of the firstborn son that belonged to Esau, and now he gets the unwanted firstborn daughter. Back in the day, 
Jacob had despised the place of the younger son, and now he is denied the younger daughter. And the man who does all of this to him is the brother of the woman who led Jacob to deceive his brother in the first place. It's wonderfully poetic justice. It's fantastic. The deceiver is deceived. And I'll lay you money on this, that only now does he realize the full meaning of Laban's greeting to him when he first meets him. And Laban says this, you are my own flesh and blood. That's great. In your wit and manipulation, you're certainly a member of this family, buddy. Come in. So, the school of hard knocks is fully in session for Jacob, and he tells us later in the story what he learned. I have been with you for 20 years now, he says to Laban, chapter 31, and I have treated you justly, but you have treated me very badly. And he says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed, but God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. He's beginning to get it. You see that? He's beginning to understand there's nothing like having your own faults turned back on you to give you a a vision of reality, as it were. The cheater has been cheated. He knows how it feels now. The slippery man is becoming less slippery. God has been changing Jacob up there in Haran. And now he heads back to the promised land, and now we get to the passage we read earlier on. During the night, on the northern bank of the river Yabok, Jacob encounters an unexpected adversary, a man, we are told, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Uh, Hebrew, by the way, is a great language for wordplay, and you'll not be surprised perhaps to, uh, when I tell you that that word wrestled has been carefully chosen. The Hebrew verb is vayabek. It's another play on the name of Jacob himself. One commentator in terms of this poetic justice thing that I've been talking about, one commentator has suggested we should translate this a man Jacobed Jacob till daybreak as a way of bringing that out. Who is this man? It's not clear initially who it is. Remember, Jacob is wrestling in the dark. It's nighttime, so he doesn't know who it is. We don't really get an insight, I think, into who it is initially. But as the story unfolds, we get the idea that somehow in this mysterious event, God Himself is present. God is in this wrestling. Even at the beginning, we're given a clue that there's something very strange about this uh, story. Uh, If you do the math, you discover that Jacob at this point in the story is 97 years old, and yet initially we are told 
the man could not overpower him, which seems a bit strange. So you, you begin to get a sense this is not a normal wrestling match. This is not an ordinary physical fight. And we know this because actually, although it says he couldn't overpower him, as soon as he really wants to, he does. He touches the socket of his hip, and his hip gets wrenched out of place, and that's the end of him. So, in this physical struggle, other stuff is going on. And Jacob, we're told, will not yield. But the injury he receives alerts him to the identity of his opponent, and we're told that Jacob asks him for a blessing. How predictable. <laughs> How utterly predictable, because Jacob is a man obsessed with getting blessings, is he not? That's the whole point of the earlier story. He's addicted to blessing. But now, in this passage, he's not dealing with a brother whose judgment is clouded by hunger. In this passage, he's not dealing with a father whose eyesight has failed. In this passage, he's dealing with God. And this blesser, who certainly has the capacity to give Jacob something he wants, this person wants something back in return. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Very well, says God, what is your name? Now, the name, of course, the name Jacob evokes everything in his past. The name Jacob evokes the cheating. So, Jacob, in being asked for the name, is also being asked a deeper question. Who are you? Who are you, Jacob? He gets his blessing, but in the process, he has to declare his name to somebody who refuses to give his own name back, and Jacob receives a change of name, no longer Jacob, but Israel. The old name won't do. It carries with it a history. It reflects a particular character. And Jacob, as he enters back into the promised land, must abandon this character. A new character must be forged. And so God prevents him from crossing that river until he is a new man. And that's what the wrestling match is about. The wrestling match is about Jacob learning that God is God and Jacob is not. It is for God to name Jacob. It's not for Jacob to name God. And so, Jacob receives this name Israel, Yisrael, which means in Hebrew, God struggles or God fights. It's a name that will always hereafter remind Jacob of the wrestling match that set him off in this new direction with God. We're told it will remind him that he has actually in this encounter somehow overcome, which is a rather extraordinary thing. How has he overcome? Uh, one commentator puts it this way, and I find this very helpful. Jacob's persistence has brought him success in his dealings with people, and now it is responsible for success in his struggle with God, not because God has surrendered, but because Jacob has conceded. 
As always, with God, one has to lose in order to win. It's a very helpful comment, I think, on this story. And so, Jacob moves on. Of course, he's met with God. In view of what Ben was saying last night, what would you expect would happen when he meets Esau? They reconcile with each other. These bitter enemies actually reconcile on the other side of this river. And now, the divine plan for Jacob has been achieved. He's not perfect after that. He's not perfect, but he is a follower of the one living God. He's somebody who in chapter 35 tells his people, rid yourselves of the alien gods in your midst and come and worship the one true God. And notice, by the way, in all of this, in all of this, God's plan for Jacob is worked out, but Jacob acts freely throughout the story. The sovereignty of God does not negate the series of choices, good and bad, that Jacob makes, but weaves all of those choices into the plan. God so loves the world. God so loves the world, even in the midst of sin and dysfunction, and we who often enter into the mission of God thinking that we can do great stuff for God out there, often realize that, in fact, like Jacob, the problems really lie in here. And uh, sometimes with that realization comes the question, does God really love me as I am? He loved me before when I stepped forward to, to do His work and, and to commit, but does He really love me now that I understand actually who I am, can God actually even use me to further the work of His kingdom? Or is this God thing really for other people, people for less sin, with less sin in their lives, more faith, more virtue? And being creatures of the extreme as we are, my experience is that the confidence of the superhero can quickly turn into the despair of the psalmist in Psalm 2, I am a worm and not a man. Do you remember that verse? We think of ourselves so highly, we come to realize that really that is not justified, and unfortunately, we often sink to the other end of the spectrum. Having discovered I'm not a god, I assume that actually I'm not a man or a woman either. Called by God in His wonderful love, I assume that I'm a worm and I have no place in God's kingdom. And I want to address as I close those of you this morning who espouse this worm theology, which I suspect is deeply rooted in Northern Ireland as it is in my home country of Scotland. So, all of you this morning who feel that God is far off and does not hear your cry, so all of you who think that you are just too dark and too screwed up and too sinful to be of any interest to a holy God who looks for a holy people, and to all of you who believe that there can be no place for you in God's kingdom and no task for you to do in God's service because you're just too bad, 
let me ask you as strongly as I can, consider Jacob. Consider the rat bag of God. Consider the perennial cheat. Consider his family, his horrendously dysfunctional family, and learn from this story who God really is, and be encouraged that however much baggage you bring into this tent this morning, and however many question marks there may be about your character, and however dysfunctional your family may be, and however much you fail to understand God and God's ways, nonetheless, God is with you in your journey. Look at Jacob and be encouraged, because I can tell you, I am encouraged by Jacob. I have to be honest. A biblical story that has Abraham in it, but not Jacob, is not a place where I personally feel quite at home. But a biblical story that has both Abraham and Jacob in it is a place where I can begin to believe that I belong. God so loved the world. And if there is any doubt about how deep His love is, take the story of Jacob to your heart. Find yourself in that story and find the God of Bethel and the God of the Yabok. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to your neighbor and experience the love of this God who so loves you and so pursues you even as he pursued Jacob. And thanks be to God that all of that is true. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk. 